0: Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast that explores mental health, especially for folks of color. I'm your host, Zell Anderson. I'm a licensed therapist and owner of Panoramic Counseling in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoy today's discussion. Welcome back to the fourth and final episode of May's Mental Health Book Club on Prince Shakur's book, When They Tell You to Be Good. And we are very excited because we have the author here today to do a very special Q&A with us. You know, we've spent the past few weeks like going through this book and kind of discussing, you know, some of the, the stories and experiences that were shared and Now uh, we get the unique opportunity to speak with the author about uh, some of the things that maybe we didn't get answers to in the book that we kind of have questions about. So I'm going to kind of, first of all, give Prince an opportunity to, you know, introduce yourself to the listeners, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll let the participants unmute themselves and start asking you questions and get the conversation going.
1: Yeah. Um, First, thank you for having me, everyone. I really appreciate it. I love talking about my writing and my books. So this is, I don't know, just really beautiful. Um, But yeah, my name is Prince Shakur. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, My family immigrated to the US from Jamaica in the late 70s, early 1980s. Um, And yeah, I've, I've been writing since I was 12. I've always loved storytelling. I've always loved movies, film, um, and a few years ago, right around the time that I went to Standing Rock to protest the Dakota Access Pipeline in 2016, I started thinking about what it would be like to write a book about my life. But a lot of it, I wanted it to be about processing grief and what it's like to lose a parent at an early age. Um, so I started writing this book in 2016, and I wanted to put in my experiences as an organizer, as a traveler, as a queer person, a black man, um, a Jamaican-American. Um, from all of these identities that I feel like I've never seen together in a book. Um, and yeah, so I started writing this book a few years ago around that time. And as I was writing it, a lot of things changed. Um, I learned a lot of things about my family that I didn't know before. Um, and I think it just kind of taught me that good art changes the, the artist um, in the process of making it. Um, and yeah, so I'm really grateful to be here. And um, now I live in New York City. I moved here a month before the book came out, um, which was really cool. I got to do my book launch back in Ohio where I grew up and I also had to do an event here. Um, and so I've just spent the past few months kind of seeing what it's like to have this book in the world, being a Black author, um, living a dream that I've had for literally since I was 13. I told myself when I was 13, I was like, you're going to publish a book by the time you're 18. Didn't happen, but it happened eventually. Yeah.
0: I read a ton of memoirs and I've you you just talked about how you piece together those different identities and um, experiences and kind of vantage points. Um, I've never read a memoir that was this dynamic. And a lot of the members of this book club kind of commented on how it sometimes felt like a stream of consciousness, but it also was like a timeline and it, all of these different I've I've consumed more memoirs than I could probably even count. But the way that this one was structured was very, very unique and definitely kept all of us engaged um, because we had to... There were some times where it was like it would shift and we were like, well, wait, this is a different perspective of it. But when it combined together as a collective, it was just like, I've never seen this before. So it was very cool to experience in real time.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, a lot of that, um, it being nonlinear was... Something I worked through with the editor, Hanif um because when he bought the book, he had a few ideas, but the biggest one was, how do we take this out of order and figure out how we situate different parts of your life around certain themes? Um, so he gave me a lot of freedom to really rearrange it and come up with different possibilities. And I really view this book as a sort of collage of both past, present, future, the internal and the external. Um, and, I, and I also take seriously the idea of querying narratives, um, bending form, looking at different narrative forms, because I think, uh, I don't know, a part of the work of white supremacy especially is making the written word matter more than anything else. And so I think if we're going to enter the written form, why not find ways to challenge yourself as an artist and also the reader and look at different, because time isn't linear for everyone. So why can't we write in that way as well?
2: um this is becky i just want to say thank you so much for writing this amazingly painfully beautiful memoir of yours i felt bonded to you in a way through my relationship with my mother um and i felt like i was like wow you know um i i I don't know i just felt like we had a lot in common i want to thank you for putting that written word out there that mothers aren't always the best you know keepers of emotional health and kind of normalizing that for other people and i just um god i lost my train of thought i had so much to say um <laughs> it was it was absolutely beautiful to read and and i'm wondering um and as as you say time doesn't really matter for or not matter but time isn't linear i felt a lot of times like i was in your position um but i'm 50 And then you would say things like Lyft or Uber or whatever. And I was like, oh yeah, that's right. This is, this is a younger, you know, younger man. Um, So I just wanted to say thank you um, for all of that. And and I'm curious, you kind of answered it already um, or maybe not. So I noticed when I I kind of went back and skimmed over again before a meeting, and I noticed some nuggets of kind of the big reveal at the end. Did you plan on sort of, planting those? Or did that just kind of come up as your recollections? Like, was that an on-purpose thing? Or is that something that just sort of happened as your memory sort of unfolded?
1: Yeah. um, (laughs) I was waiting for you to mention the end because I listened through all of the podcast episodes. And this is a big thing. (laughs) I'm sorry to laugh. The last chapter is fiction. Um, and I've and I've dealt with this at different readings and talks. Um, and even in the editing process, I went through talking with Hanif about like, should I let the reader know that it's auto fiction? Is that important? Why or why not? Um, and I mean, the deepest way that I can say why I chose not to nod to the reader that it was auto fiction is because I think memoir is such a deeply personal experience. It's It's a way to look at parts of your life from a certain lens. And I knew writing this book at the beginning, I knew I wanted to write this book and kind of try to solve my father's murder. But I also knew that there were so many things that I wouldn't be able to put in the scope of this book. And I think one of the deeper emotions that I wanted to kind of get across is that. When you lose someone that you never really knew and people say like, oh, he would have missed you or he would have loved you or he would be proud of you. I always hated when people gave me those anecdotes or platitudes um, because grief is a lifelong process. And it's also interesting to me that I was born with this kind of grief built in and I was born with this kind of sense of my own mortality. And I had this person that was a direct reflection of me that could represent how I might end. Um, or how I might be off in this world. And so fictionalizing the last chapter, I just knew I had to write towards a place where I found some kind of resolution that maybe no one else will ever be able to give me. And out of all of the chapters in the book that I wrote, um, that last chapter hasn't changed at all since I first wrote it. Like other chapters, I edited with Hanif and we shifted things around. Um, But when he agreed to take this book on, he said, I love that chapter. It's the best writing in the book. Um, And yeah, it just felt really important for me to write towards a space where I could imagine what it might actually be like to meet this person and to imagine that scenario in the most honest place that I could and to not run away from the difficulty of it. And to also say to other people like, there are many different ways to navigate and to document and to work through your grief. Um, and I, and I say work through because it's something that I'm always going to live with. And in a sense, it's almost like in writing that last chapter, I was able to, to assert an ending that I believed I deserved. And one that was also honest and one that also turned away from romanticism. Um, and so in that last section and writing about my father and Cedric, um, I wrote some of those other chapters a lot of times because I didn't want to lionize these people. I didn't want to romanticize them, but I also didn't want to totally criminalize them. Um, and so that last chapter is like my favorite part of the book. Um, and I mean, I think it can, there's the question of like, are you misleading the reader? Is this like a lie? Um, and I just think um, I needed it. And I needed to put it in the book in the form that it was because it to me, it feels like the truth. So why shouldn't it also feel like the truth to the reader? Sorry to shock you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, so many thoughts crossed my mind when you said that because we thought, as you said, you listened to episode three. So we're all like kind of leading up to this moment. And as we're reading it, because there wasn't like a, this is a, Work of fiction, this chapter or something like this, we truly believed it. And as a person who has read so many memoirs and stuff like that, never have I ever seen someone write the ending to an otherwise unresolved story, which that just hearing it here in real time, that's incredibly powerful. And there's a bunch of thoughts spinning in my head, but I'm gonna let everybody else, you know, say something on that. But uh just wanted to give that perspective.
3: Um i was getting out of the car i was one of the people that was driving um when the podcast started so i was getting out of the car when you shared that this that that um section was fiction and i was like fiction (laughs) um but how um was any part of like writing that last chapter was it healing for you like what were like kind of the thoughts that were going through your head um, as like the words were coming out of your pen,
1: yeah, thank you for that question. And, and yeah, I know I appreciate talking about this in general because I don't know, since the last chapter is my favorite, it's been surprising to me that more people haven't asked about it when I've done different events, so it's really nice to be able to talk about it. Um, I mean, I, I like that a lot of you have said that you you felt the book was a very stream of consciousness because that's exactly how I kind of wrote the last chapter. I find that some of the most resonant and powerful and meaningful pieces of writing that I've done, I just start it and it just comes out. It's like, I don't know. And that's why I think writing can be spiritual and healing and it can be a way to access some sort of ancestral knowledge or as Toni Morrison calls it, like a discredited knowledge, um, which to me merges these notions of the conscious and subconscious. But I mean, I started writing it and the first lines about the coffee and it just all fell into place in a way because some part of me, I think when I was younger, always Hoped or imagined that maybe my father wasn't dead, or hoped or imagined that maybe he had another kid that I could meet, or maybe I have a sibling out there, or I would meet someone that knew him. And so, um, I think just from the start, I wanted to satiate the youngest part of myself that hungered to just even be able to sit down with this person and talk to them and ask them questions, or at least confront this large gap or space that I feel will always be in my life and will always be a sort of core and central wound. Um, And that's just something I'm willing to live with. Um, But I wanted to write towards that. Um, And I think some of the things that felt important to include were that I don't think my father is, I don't think he was an emotionally aware person, sort of in some ways that I view his brother Cedric. Um, I wanted to write towards what happens when men struggle to understand each other, what intimacy looks like in situations where you love someone and they love you or you love someone and they don't know you um, and that's why it felt important um, to have that line of dialogue in there where he says like I don't know if I was meant to be your father because in the deepest part of me I always wondered like if my father were alive, if he hadn't been murdered, would I' have wanted him in my life? would he have been abusive to me? would he have been a better person? would he have had time to change? But then I also look at my stepfather and what he represented in my life. And I also see how men so often fail the people that are closest to them and how a part of the reason that I live as the kind of man that I try to be in this world. And the reason that I kind of carry a sort of core guilt in being a man is that I know the suffering that my mother and other women in my family had to go through. And so I wanted to speak towards that. Um, And I also, I love stories that have a kind of duality or a deep sense of the scales have to be balanced. And so that's why in that section, I had my father live, but his brother died and his brother left that journal with him. And so the utility and the power of writing and the way that it can transform people and help them change, I wanted to imagine a possible reality where my father still maybe wasn't the right person or the perfect person or a great parent figure but he did have the capacity to, to change and maybe in ways that i wouldn't have loved or accepted um but it, i mean it was i mean it's the most healing thing i've ever written because i gave myself something that no one in my family has ever been able to give me and and some of that is just imagining what it would be like to sit across from him what it would be like to imagine the ways that were similar um what kind of food he would like how he would eat what he would look like standing across from me um and and i mean And I think if I'd written the book like a year or two later, it would have maybe had a different ending because I finished writing the book in 2020. Um, And in January 2021, I went back to Jamaica for the first time since I was 17. Um, And I got to try to look for his grave site and I got to talk to other family members about him. I got to ask other questions. And I didn't necessarily learn things that were like life altering or changing. Um, But one thing that my uncle, said to me when I was in Jamaica, he said, you have to choose what parts of him you hold on to. And and I think what I learned with that last chapter is that I spent so much of my life searching for him in the world, searching for answers about him through other people. And I realized like I'm the answer. I'm the product of what he was. I'm one of the last things that he left in the world. And I can decide how he shows up in my life. And, 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 and this is even like strange to think about, but it's like where I live now in New York, um, he had a funeral in Jamaica and he also had a funeral in New York. And where I live now is a mile from where he had his New York funeral. And so I kind of see how grief allows certain parts of his life to kind of follow me. And that will always be the case. Um, yeah, and it's it's the most healing thing I've ever written.
3: Did you know that um, when you moved to New York that he had a New York funeral and that you were gonna be living like so close to where the funeral was or was that like mainly like or purely coincident?
1: Um I I can't remember when I found out that he had a new York funeral. I knew that I knew that I had a pamphlet from his funeral and it said New York City but I was always kind of confused and I guess I figured out somewhere along the way. But, um, I mean, I was surprised when I moved here and I was like Bushwick Avenue that's right over there. Um, (laughs) so yeah, I I didn't know. And, um, I know, I think the fact that I didn't know just makes it a little bit more serendipitous in a way. Like I also have family from his side of the family that live here. Um, but they're, they're connected to my uncle Cedric. So I'm very careful about how I engage with them. Um, So things still kind of continue. But yeah, I I didn't know moving here was a a surprise to me.
0: And we've done a handful of memoirs now. And oftentimes we get to the end and we're, as is with a memoir, especially written by a younger person. There's always like the, well, what happens next? Right? There's always that kind of, well, did this thing get resolved or something like that? So you took an approach to it that we don't get to see a lot Uh, and I know a lot of people in this this setting here read a lot of memoirs and we're all like kind of we all feel that almost like a sense of grief and loss at the end of reading you know because you you basically strap yourself in with this person and going through their life and then it's like okay go you know and then it's like well, well what do I what do I do with this so you took an approach to it that I've never seen before
1: yeah and I I appreciate that because um <clears throat> i knew going into this i was like i might write another memoir in 10 years like let me keep living life in a special way um and so that's part of the joy of it for me and i mean i think also this is maybe a morbid kind of admission but when i s- started writing a lot more in college and in my 20s and especially when i got more radicalized and into being an organizer a model that i've always kind of told myself is i want to create a body of work that rivals my lifetime um, because there is parts of that book where I, I mentioned like, oh, I, if I keep organizing, or if I keep confronting the state in this way, I'll be gone by this time. Um, and so in a way, I kind of wrote this with that in mind. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think the notion of of young memoir is something that I hope to lend a hand to or to kind of encourage other people to, to do and to kind of express themselves through because I, I mentioned it in the acknowledgments, but I think there's so much ageism in the world that we live in. And that coupled with anti-Blackness and racism and all of these other isms, it just tells people that your stories don't matter, or you have to be qualified in a certain way, or you have to have a certain kind of platform or a certain kind of reach. Um, and I think a more empathetic and fair sort of creative industry would encourage younger people to tell their stories and to ask hard questions. And that to me is like a very radical and revolutionary and kind of liberatory thing. And so I do like the idea that in 10 years, like maybe I'll write a book, and I'll be a completely different person. And I'll maybe go back on some of the things I said in this one, or it'll be an extension, or um, I'll be grateful to my younger self for having documented these things that maybe in the future will be far more fuzzy, or I won't be able to recollect in the same way. And so I think that closeness is necessary and i think it also when a memoir ends and it's a younger person you also can invest in the the kind of endless possibilities of what can be next because i think it's different when someone's older and i don't know i I think age changes the way that we view regret and i think regret is an interesting thing that can come into play when you're writing especially about your life or regret or shame or whatever phrase you want to use but um I mean, those are all things that I care deeply about. And so, I don't know, I'm excited that I wrote this and I have a possibility to write another thing in like five or 10 years.
2: Um, I have another question for you. I'm the sibling of a lesbian who was able to come out in her own way. Um, And I was wondering if that part of the book, when you took the drive, was that authentic? And if so... You know, like you know, when you were in the car with your mother, um, and I think was it her sister that was with you with was there another car? Was that did that really happen? And if so, how how did you move on with that to be able to continue to have or do you still have a relationship with your mom or just
1: Yeah, and yeah. You, I mean
2: you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. Right? Just- yeah,
1: yeah. No, I, I'm comfortable talking about it. Um I, I still talk to my mother and talk once or twice a week, love her. Um, She's not perfect, but I mean, if I'm being very honest, I like even through all the stress and chaos and trauma and it's like, it, it was so moving to listen to all of your perspectives during the podcast, because in a way writing this book, it gave me a lot of empathy for my younger self, but also hearing all of your thoughts it kind of also gave me this empathy, like, Oh, other people recognize my suffering in a way that sometimes, even me now being 28, I look back and I'm like, how did I make it through that? Um, But I mean, yeah, when I was 15, that actually happened. My mother woke me up at like 4 a.m. It was like the last three weeks of school. um, And she asked me if I was gay, took me downstairs, said all kinds of horrible things, berated me, and then (laughs) (laughs) then went back to bed and then she drove me to school. And that day we went to Cedar Point, an amusement park. And so I was just like, and I mean, to 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 kind of share the reality of it. I mean, by that point, I had been contending with my own self-hatred from like age 11 to like 13, 14. And then when that self-hatred kind of melted away, I went through like a deep period of angst, of, of feeling bitter towards my parents for having a culture and the kind of way of looking at the world that made me feel like I should hate myself. Um, and I turned to the internet. I found places like trevorspace.net. I don't know if it's still around, but it's basically like MySpace for LGBTQ teenagers. And I'm, I mean, I'm thankful I had the internet because I was able to go online and talk to other teenagers and learn about their experiences. And I mean, the deepest part of me was always prepared to get kicked out of the house, to lose everything. I mean, I grew up with my parents making really messed up jokes about what would happen if they had gay kids. And so, I mean, for me... I was prepared for the worst. And so when I was at school going to Cedar Point, like I had no idea what would happen that day. Um, And I want, and actually when I first wrote the book, that was the scene that I opened it with because I wanted to open it in a moment of danger. And I wanted to open it with a moment that paralleled how my biological father passed away, which was he died on a road trip going to Florida. And I wanted to situate myself in this moment of extreme discomfort and lack of safety, but put it in this domesticated space. Um... And yeah, I mean, I remember being really terrified. I remember that weekend I was supposed to go with my best friend on a trip with her dad and that was canceled. And I remember having to come out to my mom, looking forward to this trip, having that trip be canceled and thinking, I'm going to have to go home. I'm going to have to face this. And no one at school, none of, none of the other adults in my life, no one is going to fucking save me. And so I had to figure out what I had to know about myself in order to save myself. And so I wanted to write that scene kind of thinking about, and like, it was real. Like, I was like, if I got to fight my mom to get out of this car and run away, like I'm gonna run through East Cleveland. I'm gonna make it. Um, And so I, it sounds weird to say it, but I was prepared for anything to happen. And I knew that anything could happen. And I mean, just being from a Jamaican culture, like people get brutalized in Jamaica all the time. People get murdered all the time. And so it would almost be naive for me to expect anything else. And so when everything hit the fan i i don't even know looking back i'm like how did you deal with that and i think i had the internet i had my friends at school um and yeah and and i mean even though it was extremely traumatizing in a way i was just grateful that nothing got physical that i wasn't physically harmed um and that sounds weird to say like oh choose the lesser evil um and yeah it actually happened i mean i was deeply betrayed i confused i ripped up that journal later that day um and i mean i mentioned it in the book too but luckily like a few weeks after that i was accepted into this two-week young writers workshop at kenyon college and i got to go away i got to live in a dorm i got to kind of sort of cosplay what my future in a year would be because i also went to a three-year high school so when i came out that was a year before i was going to graduate um and going to that workshop was also my first time being around new people for a while. When I was there, I lied and said I had a girlfriend because I didn't want to come out. Um, I don't know. And I I just look back and I mean, writing this book, what I kept saying to myself again and again is I I thank this younger version of myself for making it through all these things that I have no idea if I could handle in the same way now. Um I don't know. So in a way, it's like, and I guess like therapy helped writing helped um and those are all things I kind of wanted to nod to um but yeah I mean it was wild I mean like six months later my brother came out while he was in the military um I don't think I explicitly put that in the book because I didn't want to share his journey but I mean it was wild me coming out and then my brother coming out and seeing her reaction to him I was like oh girl what 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 were you feeding us that made us both gay that's good. Did you feel like you had a partner then? Like
2: as far as, you know, someone to kind of a support system when Not your brother all. came? Out
0: today,
1: no, you know? me and my brother are very different. He's three years older. Um, I'm much more confrontational. I'm much more like, this is what I deserve. I think my brother is much more cynical about people. He's a lot less trusting. Um, and I think in a lot of ways from like age 15 to when I was maybe like 22, like, I think he judged me a lot for how Upfront, I was, and I mean, I, it's mentioned in the book. But after my freshman year in college, my mother found out that I had a YouTube channel where I talked about being gay, and she freaked out, and um, and I mean, that was really horrible. And I called my brother because I was expecting him to come to my come to the house and pick me up and like let me stay with him for a few few days, but he came to me downstairs after he sat and watched my aunt and my mother berate me for like an hour in the garage. And he said, you know, I just had to grow up and I think you need to grow up too. Um, And so I was alone in a lot of it. Like I, I think I represented a possibility for my brother, but he never represented a possibility for me or a vision of how I wanted to live. And, And I mean, things are better in some ways now, but I mean, I have friends that I'm closer to in terms of like my queerness than I ever will be with my brother. Um, And that's just like a fact that I've accepted because we're very different. And I think we've worked through our traumas very differently. Um, Yeah.
0: Hey, y'all. I'm interrupting this episode to let you know how you can support my podcast, writing, and other creative projects. Head over to the show notes of this episode where you can consider buying me a coffee once or monthly, gift me a book from my wish list, or just leave a nice review to help others find this podcast. I know your time and money is valuable, so thank you in advance for your support. And now, let's get back to the show.
4: I I think that idea of loving people for who they are instead of for who you want them to be is so pure. I mean, that is the best love that we can give anyone. And it's the most human in that purity, but it's also the most not natural thing because regardless, it is human nature to judge Um, And so what I really appreciate about you is I think um, this this sandwiching that you've done for yourself, where you're willing to go out and be who you are and speak to that and to be an advocate and an ally um, and to take that up. And yet you still try to have that relationship with your mom. You still try to have that relationship with your brother, accepting. That some things are different. Um, And that's something that I try to do. And I find that it ebbs and flows. Um, It was really hard for me this spring. Like, I bought a house, I changed jobs, I did all sorts of things. I didn't talk to my parents for six months. And now we're back to talking to each other a few times a week again. I try not to shut them out, but I feel like the advocacy and the self preservation are a balance. And I also try to just love them for who they are. They have their own trauma and they try to live a little bit better for me. And I'll try to live a little bit better for the next generation, whether that's under my own roof or the kids that I teach. But, you know, all I can do is is try to heal a little bit more so that I harm a little less. I was just wondering your take, like, how do you how do you balance? And obviously, we've read quite a bit of that in your book. But even as an author and as as a public figure, because you know your book is you, and there are some some moments where you really get a light shown on you. But it's it's mostly you, as an individual. So I'd like to hear too, like as a public speaker, how do you balance that sandwiching? How do you figure out your push pull? Um, because I'm I'm always trying to do that and do that well. I wanna I wanna do the right thing, but I'm also learning that I'm a part of the equation in the right thing.
1: Yeah. um, I mean, I think first, uh, for me, I at a very early age had to figure out whether or not I believed in unconditional love or whether or not it was a myth or whether or not it could actually be true. And I think the experience of coming out and realizing that my family didn't understand me in the way that I wanted, I realized like, oh, maybe they're isn't unconditional love or, or maybe there is, but you have to go into the world and find it. You can't just, it's not just handed to you. And I, and I think a part of the way that I've come of age is that I understand that some people just don't get what they'd want or deserve in life. Like I don't ever expect to have a family that I fully feel comfortable with or will support me. Um, but I also kind of hold myself to this standard where I tell myself, like, if they don't love me, if they don't understand me, I'm going to go out into the world and do as much as I can, live as much as I can, prove them wrong as, as much as I can. And a part of that is this sort of, I guess, sad theory that I've told myself is like, maybe I was born into this family to exist in the way that I know how to, to teach them something. And in a way it's, maybe that's kind of like a hopeful prophecy, but I also view it as a kind of burden um, and, and I think, especially when I talk to high schoolers and college students about this book, which I've had a lot of opportunities to, and they ask me like, "How do you deal with it?" or "How are things with your family now?" or "What advice would you give to us?" and I always say, the most honest, honest part of me tells you like, you have to decide what you're willing to accept. You have to you have to decide your threshold of pain. You have to decide the amount of suffering that you can handle. If there are people in your life that don't love you in the way that you think you need to be loved. But there's, there's something from that connection that is of benefit to you or you feel like is good for you. Uh, and so, I mean, being honest, I mean, sometimes I judge myself for still being in connection with my family because I think like, oh, I'm, am I disrespecting myself for allowing these people to be in my life who don't truly recognize me? Um, but I just kind of accept like, this is a compromise I'm willing to make. And maybe that compromise will change one day. Maybe it won't. Um, but that's just like very—it's something very important for me to be upfront about. Um, and I have certain boundaries or things that I know, if they were to happen with my family, I would probably cut off contact. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and and I think that's a big part of why I travel so much and why I wanted to go to these all, all these places in the world. Um, because a big theme that I wanted to tackle with this book was this notion of queer displacement. So if you are born into a life or a world. That not suitable for you what does it mean to be flung out into the world and to try to find things that make you feel alive or make you feel loved or make you feel grateful or bring you closer to a kind of truth um and i think all of those things have helped me along the way and i've definitely gone through periods where i didn't talk to my mother like when i was in yellowstone i didn't talk to her for half of that summer because she said things that deeply hurt me when i was going there um and there's been other times in my life where i haven't talked to her um and eventually, I found my way back, but it was always on my own terms. Um, and I think there's just this sort of sad reality that I think a lot of queer people or people with families that don't understand them have to kind of exist in, which is you come of age while anticipating loss and grief, and you and you have to prepare yourself. And I, I remember my roommate from a few years ago, um, he is trans, and his... Mother passed away a few years ago, and he talked a lot to his therapist about how he wasn't as sad as people expected him to. And his therapist was like, when you are young and LGBTQIA, you grieve at an earlier age. You anticipate all these losses anyway. And so when they come, you're almost prepared for them. And it doesn't make it any easier, but that's just like the most vicious truth that I can think of. And I think in being a public speaker, I... Like I feel lucky enough that I know myself enough to articulate these parts of myself. And I also try to be as honest as I can. And I think in a lot of places or spaces where I talk about my book, I also know like if I'm asked a question, I can usually come up with three different answers. And so I think there are so many different truths that exist at the same time. And so I think that push and pull for me is just trying to be as honest as I can about those gray areas, about the compromises that I've made, the ways that I judge myself. And also, um, yeah, I think, I think that's just like the best that anyone can do. Um, Yeah.
0: I really love the sections of the book that you talked about your traveling, because I got to live vicariously through you with backpacking and just like getting on a plane with very little money and just figuring it out as you go. Like, The bravery and the development that you went through, through those experiences were pretty great. And I would just agree with something you said earlier is I'm a writer as well. So because I write things, that craft pushes me to do things more adventurously, because I got to have something to write about. And so seeing that and seeing just all the different experiences that you put yourself into. It, it definitely shows in the collective of this book. And you also talked about like therapy and kind of writing as a form of therapy and stuff like that. I definitely, you know, whether it be like journaling or even like in a way like doing this podcast, having different ways to talk about stuff or literally going to therapy. I'm a therapist too. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways to get therapy, but out of all the different things I've tried and i because I'm a therapist, I tell my clients, like, I'm not going to tell you to do anything unless I've tried it too. So, um, but out of everything that I've done for my own mental health, writing is one of the most powerful, like I uh, try to journal at least 10 minutes a day and stuff like that. But um, I recently decided that I was going to write my own memoir. And part of that realization came like the decision to do it was in the midst of reading your book. So, um, and the part, I mentioned it in the last episode where you get to the end of the acknowledgments and you said, this book is proof that young people have stories to tell too. And it just hit me like, so I decided, okay, I'm going to write my memoir and I'm not even going to hold you. Like I wrote one piece of a chapter, like I started it. And when I tell you that emotionally it tore me in half and I'm still piecing myself back together. The, the journey of like trying to like, I just have so much respect for you because until I started writing my own story, like I've written, you know, essays and things like that, but I'm embarking on a journey of putting it collectively together in a book and having just read yours and having read hundreds of other memoirs and stuff like that. But having made that first step to start writing my own and literally getting bombarded with all the emotions and the the thoughts and everything like that. I wanted to see if you could like speak to that, like what emotionally that felt like as you went through the process. Cause I know I'm only like a little bit in and it's quite flooding and overwhelming. So like, what was that like for you as you wrote your own story?
1: Oh, um, I think, different parts of the book mean different things to me. Um, When I was writing the really younger sections, being five, being in elementary school or middle school, even high school, a lot of it was me grappling with my own perception of my childhood. And so when I was writing a lot of this book, I was kind of trying to figure out like, why are the more sad parts of my childhood more memorable? Um, And then at some point I just kind of had to accept like, you kind of had a wild childhood and like, there was a lot of beautiful things, a lot of great things, but there were also many things that I wished someone had helped me work through, talk through, um, help me process. Um, and so that chapter when I'm five in Jamaica was really just kind of like, I don't know. It was almost like sitting with my five-year-old self and kind of being like, what do you remember? What did it look like? Or what did it feel like? Um, And so I think those sections gave me a deep respect for my younger self and my younger self is this kind of, like the notion of the inner child, like it gave me a deeper connection to my inner child. Um, I think the sections where I'm coming of age, um, those were a lot harder to write because I recognized that I had so much longing. I longed to have friends. I longed to have people accept me. I longed to like be around people that excited me and were interesting and adventurous. And in some of that longing, I either found or attracted people that were not right for me or could do damage or were destructive or didn't understand their own power. Um, and so I kind of had to recognize not my mistakes, but some of the illusions that I realized I had to work through, some of that naivete that I had towards the world, Um, and I think especially writing about sex and trauma and some of the parts of the book where I was just literally embarrassed. Like I love my time in the Philippines. I'll always go back. I won't ever denigrate a whole culture or country. Um, but it was really embarrassing to write a lot of that stuff and write a lot of the things that I experienced that made me feel dehumanized. But I also knew like the fact that this is so intense to me means that. It probably should show up on the page. It deserves to be there. And, and I think a lot of what I had to work through was stigma and shame because when something is hard to write, it's either because you're being re-triggered by it or it's because you've been taught to feel shameful about something that was never your fault. Um, and so that's why it was important for me to write that Philippines Philippines chapter because it's not only about me going out into the world and being really far away in a place that isn't like Europe, and being shocked by the culture and how I was treated. But it was also about me confronting how I can be fetishized or desired. And also how my own sadness and frustration with not having lost my virginity by the time I was like, how old was I when I was in the Philippines? I think I was 22. Like I lied about losing my virginity when I was in France. And so <clears throat> it felt important for me to look at the moments where I <clears throat> realized certain lies that I've told myself. Um, and then I mean, who, I mean, the 2018 being in France section where I write about like learning about Cedric, um I think that, I mean, it's almost hard for me to to describe, but I mean, it was extremely traumatizing to figure out this huge family secret about how I was born, about how I was brought into the world, about how my father's death and his abuse, how that became this thing that punished my mother and led to two of her brothers being killed. And how in so many ways to my mother, I represent this kind of core wound that she had, but I also represent a sort of way to move past it. Like you represent numerous things at once to people. Um, And so it was really painful to learn this stuff and to be writing about it and to be embarrassed like i was so embarrassed that no one had told me my whole life that my father had this brother he killed two of my mother's brothers like and even in learning of some of that stuff my mother for the first time in my life was very explicit about certain instances of abuse that she went through with my father she told me this story about how shortly after after i got out of the hospital from being in the nicu that she <clears throat> took me home and my father sort of like beating her up and she shot at him in self-defense and someone heard the shot and called the police and my father ran. And she said that I was crying in the, in the baby seat the whole time and how her, I think she said her aunt came to pick me up or her neighbor or something. And to realize that you come from such incredible violence, um, it almost makes you feel like you're beholden to it or you'll never escape it. And so for a few weeks, I was just like, And I and I felt this in life sometimes where you feel this deep pit of sadness. And I describe it as like being heartbroken. And I was talking to a lot of friends and trying to process. And I remember my friend Jelana said to me, she said, so you started writing this book because you wanted to learn about your dad, right? And I said, yeah. And she said, you wanted to know the truth, didn't you? And I said, yeah, of course I did. And she said, now you know the truth and you feel sorry for yourself, but what are you going to do about it? And I think that was such an important moment for me because I realized like, This is a part of my story, but it isn't all that I am. It isn't me. And the fact that I'm here, that I'm alive, that I'm asking these questions means that something has been broken. And I have to acknowledge that and I have to honor it. And I can't run away from it because this is a part of what brought me into the world. So how could I deny it or lie about it or try to cover it up? And so I think a part of the fear and the terror of memoir is that at some point, you're going to stumble upon something that is going to be really hard for you to write. And I think working through that is also working through yourself. Like you don't want to get in your own way. Um, and so I, I experienced all of those things. And I mean, am I with Enzo anymore? No, we broke up. Was it difficult to write some of this book when I knew I was going to break up with them? Yeah. But, um, yeah. I mean, I'm just grateful that this book has taught me so much. And I mean, I've been experiencing this since it's been published, but it's almost like this book has been apparent to me. Like it's helped reparent me in a way that I couldn't have ever imagined. Like I knew I was like, I want to write it. I would to express my reality, but it's also changed me as a person. It's challenged me. Um, and I'm proud that I met the occasion that I set up for myself and I've gone past that.
0: You just answered anything that I could have asked. And I think it transcends too, to anybody who has a story and wants to find a way to like work through the stuff that they've been through. Cause there's, you know, memoir is not the only medium to do that, but Mm -hmm. the, like you said, it was almost like you had to, you're facing down something very scary to, to get it to where it's written down. And I wrote notes down. I was like, if it's embarrassing, it probably should be in there. And that's probably why I've had such a crazy emotional reaction to this one little section that I wrote. Cause it was like, oh, okay, we're mm-hmm. revisiting that place. And truly, the thing that I was writing about, it was during a time in my life where I literally was feeling as I was writing that, how I felt living in that city, in that place. And so yeah. we've, we on this book club, we did a book. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. So, you know, I know that that is what was occurring like the 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 memories the sensations all of that but just mad respect for the fact that you clearly had to go through a ton of that just to get this this book to exist in the way that it is so um lots of respect to you
3: how did it feel like opening up the um package that had like your finalized book in
1: it oh ah. Uh, um it was great, but it was also bittersweet um, and great in the sense like I got to work with an editor that I love, who's local, who I've written under, like Hanif Abdurraqib. But like, I think he just respected my brain and mind and what I wanted to do. And when you're breaking into publishing or writing, so much of it is, no, 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 we don't know how to make this break out. Or while I was trying to sell the book with my previous agent, like I that agent left and I had to query new people. And I had so many agents tell me like, Oh, your query letter made me cry. And like, but I don't think I can work on this. I'm like, what the hell? Like what about black writers matter? Or, I don't know, own voices or whatever. Um, and so it was beautiful. It was amazing. Um, but the bittersweet part was in the year up to that. Um, I had a writing mentor that i have known for about two years pass away. And he was a black man in his forties who had a family, had kids, who gave me a lot of support and guidance and he died like three months before I got like my box of books. Um, And I also had a friend die um, around the, like in the past year, a grandmother passed away. And so I just kind of mentioned those things as like, since I've been writing this book, I mean, this book is about grief. I describe it as like kind of coming of age through grief And then I was experiencing all these beautiful moments and thinking of all these people that couldn't be there or wouldn't witness it. Um, So I cried a lot because I just thought like, he's never going to see this. Like, I mean, I believe in the afterlife and people watching over you, but I mean, it was extremely bittersweet. Um, And like thinking about crystal um, my best friend's mother who passed away when I was a senior in college. Um, And so it was a lot of, different things like just writing a book and then having to add names to it to people that you love who you know that have passed and being like what the hell is happening like um but i think it also taught me like you have things that you can share with people but i've also learned like how to appreciate moments that you experience on your own or just within yourself um and granted like i got to tell people about it and show friends the books in the box um but it was very bittersweet, um, like arriving to something and imagining all the people that would be there and realizing like, they're not here. I'm here. So it was, it was a, it was a mix of a lot of different things.
0: What really actually caught my attention to feature this book in the book club was when I read like the Amazon description and it was basically about, it's kind of this mystery of what happened to your dad. Right. But then we've made it through this book and we've Most of us, I think here have learned that the actual ending of the book that um, we kind of all experienced last week, um, we now know uh, a fuller picture of that, which blew all of our minds. Uh, But then you shared like your father and your mom's brothers. And I don't know if I missed it in the book or if that was just new information that was added, but now I need to go back and read it with fresh eyes. Because this seems to be one of those books that you're going to get something different every time you go through, which is also a sign. And I know you've probably heard this already, but like not every book can be that dynamic to where it can give you something different each time. So I'm actually really, really, really excited to go back and with these new insights, look at it because I feel like I got like the surface the first time I passed through it. And now I can go even deeper into it. So I'm looking forward to that. But We appreciate you for putting this book into the world and for taking the time to talk with us today. Um, Before we wrap up for today, I'm going to give you the floor to um, share with uh, the listeners to this podcast, um, where they can find you talk about uh, before we started recording, you mentioned a novel in the works, if you want to share about that. So kind of just let us know a little bit more about you, where we can find you, what you're up to that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, um, thank you again. Uh... Yeah, you can find me online. I have a website where I pretty much have all of my art um, writings on there. Printshakur.com, P-R-I-N-C-E-S-H-A-K-U-R.com. I I run a podcast where I interview other artists, hour-long conversations, artists in different mediums called The Creative Hour. Um, I also run a newsletter called Millennial Writer Life, where I share different writing reflections and resources, um, places to pitch to, residencies to apply to. You can find me on social media. Instagram is at Sweet Black Prince. You can find me on TikTok and Twitter at P-R-S-H-A-K-U-R. Um, and yeah, I mean, these days I'm working on a novel that I've been writing since the lockdown, but I actually wrote it in college. Um, the basic log line is it's about a 17-year-old Black boy growing up in the Deep South in 1986 and 87, and his older brother has just passed away, and he's kind of trying to figure out how his brother died. And a part of it is in jail, a part of it is in New York. And it's kind of against the backdrop of the beginnings of the AIDS crisis. Um, and I'm also into screenwriting. I made my first short film two months ago. Um, I wrote it, co-produced it, um, acted in it. Um, and yeah, so I'm always just kind of reaching for other mediums, other ways to express myself. And yeah, I'm living in New York and writing. Um, adjuncting as a professor, um, doing everything I can. Um, so wish me luck on this second book, because <laughs> I'm on draft nine. Thank you so much.
0: Listeners of this podcast, thank you so much for tuning in today. And be sure to join us back next week. We For June's Mental Health Book Club, we are going to get into Greta Thunberg's compilation book, uh, which is called The Climate Book. And we are, even though it's not specifically about mental health, we're going to be looking at it from the perspective of eco-anxiety. So be sure to tune in for that uh, for the month of June. Uh, But until next time, thank you so much for listening and take care.